Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Psachim, page Gimel, daf Gimel, uh, that's page three. We are jumping right in. Our Gemara is actually referring to the Mishnah, as we discussed yesterday, right? The, the Mishnah opens, or Larbashe, the the evening of the 14th, except for that the word is or, and or means light, so doesn't that mean the daytime? And the Gemara finally asks exactly this question. Tashma, Shouldn't it say, let the Mishnah say, the night of the of the 14th, you check for chametz, you know, by the light of the candle. Alma or or to who? And, the, and so it says the same thing that I said yesterday, actually, right? That the very fact that you're using a candle tells you that it's ortho, that it's the evening. But in the meantime, why not have it say lele? Why not have it say night? So the Gemara now addresses what your Dana, what you had said yesterday, this idea that maybe it was going to be used euphemistically. And the Gemara begins by saying as follows The very fact that we talk about things that have a positive side and a negative side, you can say, you know, yes and no. You can say, Tahor and Tameh, but the Gemara often, and the Chumash, doesn't always say Tameh, right, or maybe often doesn't say Tameh, it says Tahor ve'eno Tahor, that which is pure and that which is not pure, and then it's wink, wink, nudge, nudge, everybody understands that which is not pure means in this context Tameh, that which is impure, so the, but the idea is that we're going to say it euphemistically, it's not euphemistically, it's saying, saying it slightly more positively, and I feel like I do this all the time, uh, you know, literally at home when I'm talking about things that are the things that are good and things that are not so good, right? If I want to, as opposed to saying bad, right? Because bad somehow becomes bad, you know, a more negative term than it might really even need to be. So the Gemara continues here and it says, we should always speak euphemistically. A person should always use clean language, nice language, um, Again, it really does mean a euphemism, and the examples that are given are are racier than than or meaning evening as opposed to daytime, um, or even for that matter, tamei and tahor. Shahare bezav karo merkav ubeisha krao moshav v'omer v'tivchay l'shon arumim omer v'daat svatai v'ruar milalo. So what happens? We have verses, right, that talk about the ritually impure, right? We talk about a zav. Now, a zav is a man who has uh, some kind of uh, some kind of emission that renders him impure, right? That's it's a technicality, but that's that's tech, that is what it is. Meaning, the definition of the zav is the fact that someone has some kind of bodily emission that renders him in renders him impure. And then the question is, how do you talk about that? Right, so it talks about so the the verses Merkav, right? That it, they say that he's riding, or for a, a woman that she was, um, the, a woman who's a zava, right? Again, somebody, a woman who's had some kind of emission that indeed renders her impure. We talk about Moshav that she is sitting, and as as opposed to saying, as I keep saying here, in this not lashonikia, not in this lack of euphemistic language, somebody who has had an emission that renders them impure. Right? That's not what is said here. Rather, the idea is you should you should say it a little bit more, more modestly, right? That you, you talk about sitting. Why do you talk about sitting for the woman? Because riding, if you talk about riding for the woman, that by itself would suggest an immodest um, conduct on her part if she's riding 
what I guess we would call Western saddle, right? That if she's riding with her legs split, that isn't that inherently immodest. So we're going to talk about her sitting, whereas the man riding becomes the more modest term than to discuss, you know, any bodily fluids. Um, and then, of course, it, it, the 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 Gemara here says, and it quotes a verse from Eo from the Book of Job. You chose the language of the crafty. Meaning you should always be clever when you figure out how to say things in a way that is more appropriate as opposed to less appropriate. And there's another verse in Eov, but meaning not in the same place at all as many chapters later. Uh, the first is in Perak Tedvav, the chapter 15, and the second one is in chapter 33, Lamed Gimel. The second one says, And that those that which my lips know, they shall speak sincerely. Meaning, just because you're speaking in a um, euphemistic manner does not mean that, that you don't mean what you say. It means that, you know, the idea is really wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that everybody knows what those terms mean. If you speak about, oh, I don't know, there's so many euphemisms for so many things that are, they're getting lost today because we live in a much more blatant kind of culture where it becomes much more acceptable to talk about things like bodily fluids, right? But once upon a time, you talk about the restroom, as opposed to, I know that when I first encountered people from England who spoke about the toilet, as opposed to the bathroom, bathroom, restroom, toilet, they all do mean the same location. And yet each one is a little bit more or less jarring, depending on what you've been given to expect as a little bit more euphemistic. Um, so so this is this is the first point, right? The idea that we should speak in a euphemistic lang language to always err on the side of saying something that's a little bit more positive, even if the negative is not all that negative, you know, like talking about night as opposed to, to a word that means day, using it to mean night. But the idea is still the same, that, that, that we, we should pride ourselves, we should make a great effort to speak in a refined manner. And then the Gemara says, but why do we need all of these proofs? Right. And the answer, and I'm reading this, I'm not reading this in, inside. I'm going to just explain it outside, um, mostly in the interest of time. But the, the Gemara is it's almost self-referential here in that it says, well, if you only brought the first cases of, of psukim, right, then you might think that this idea of lashonikia, uh, of a clean, refined language, is only when it's, we're talking about actual Torah things. But what about rabbinic things? And we would think that this requirement or this ex, um, expectation does not apply to rabbinic language or when, if we're going to talk about ordinary speech, do we really have to be so careful? And the answer is, uh, this is again that second verse from Eob, that which my lips know, they shall speak sincerely, meaning you should always speak with this euphemism, with the manner of euphemism in every situation. And again, I'm struck by, you know, we talk all the time about how different the world was then. I actually really um, buy into this. I prefer this Lashonikia, but I also know that I am an antiquated old fashioned old fogey in this particular regard. And nowadays, this is not how people speak. Well, it's very Victorian, the page, right? I mean, particularly the example about the women, <laughs> you know, that, you know, just even suggesting that they're writing an animal is just not appropriate language to use. Look, this is not how people speak. Um, it's certainly not how I speak. And I actually read this stuff and 
uh, I don't know. It sort of filled me with a little bit of shame. I'm not particularly careful. And those who know me personally know I certainly have enjoyed, you know, let's say some off humor. <laughs> um, um, may not always speak so cleanly at work always. Um, and it's, I don't know, this like gives you really is like, please don't talk that way. <laughs> so this was a difficult task for me to digest. But I think I think the points, and I know you're Dan. I know you're about to talk about this. I think the point of what is considered. I would say like this. I think the question on the staff is what is to be considered lashonikia. What is refined speech and what is not refined speech? And maybe nowadays, those um, the bar has moved, right? And what we call refined speech now then might have been oh my goodness, so brazen, so blatant, whatever. But nowadays, there is still an, a matter of, you know, pay, paying the idea that one should pay attention to what they're saying, that we should all pay attention to what we're saying in terms of speaking in a more refined manner. I'm not sure that that necessarily means always that we have to say that which is not pure instead of saying the word impure, right? As a, but there's plenty of situations where I think we, again, I'm not giving musr to anybody. I'm not rebuking anybody for how anybody speaks. I'm just saying the idea that there's an ideal presented here uh, to, to err on the side of the refined as opposed to the crass. Uh, again, I don't think that it appeals to everybody. I think that there's something very comfortable and, and pleasing about being able to be what Israelis call dugri. I'm going to say what I mean. I'm going to say it to you straight no matter what that language is. And there's something, you know, again, comforting in that. And I also think there's something nice about refined. So I can be, you know, I can argue both sides. What I found interesting here, though, is that, you know, as much as this is sort of a very Victorian approach, right? And even the example they give here with the writing, right? That you wouldn't use the word rochevet. And then they go through Rivka to say no, but there's an example where we do use that word with, 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 uh, with Rivka, and, you know, the reason is, is because you can't ride side saddle on the camel. You can only ride, you know, the regular that way, which is. Which just goes to show how many, you know, seminary teachers or high school teachers tell all the girls, but Rifka Hagamal, that when Rifka, quote, fell down on the camp from the camels because she was riding side saddle because she was so tsanoa. And really, 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 Tipol means to dismount a camel. Yes. That's, that's the word. Oh, that's, that's what true. it means. That's a very good point. But then the Gamar sort of comes back right, to a totally different way of understanding this. And this has to do with the word tameh, right? So, but they're basically asking the obvious question, which is you gave some of these examples of where it says like, and the thing that isn't tahor, right? Instead of using the word tameh. And then they're like, okay, that might be true that sometimes the Torah uses euphemistic language, but at the end of the day, the word tameh is all over the Torah. Ella, kol heicha dihi hadadi ninu, Right. So what they come to the conclusion is, is that if you have two, you know, words or two phrases that are equal in length, you're always going to use the Lashonikiyah, right? The euphemistic, the cleaner one. But anywhere where the euphemistic one, I guess, is more numerous, right, is, is longer um, or requires more words. Right then, the Torah is going to use more lashon kitzara, lashon concise language. First of all, the examples that they gave before—that's not—I don't think that's actually the case, right? The examples they gave where it says that which is in tahor, I think the word tameh would have been more concise. But I for sure. Right, but I think also you see that there is a little bit of a tension here on the page, 
where they're sort of saying like, yeah, it's nice to talk in euphemistic language, but we also know it can make things like longer, complicated, imprecise. So like when you can use Lashon Kitsara, even if it may not be as refined, it's better to use Lashon Kitsara. Like it's almost like they want to asterisk the principle that they just explored. Uh, but I, I think that, I think that's, I think what you're saying is true. And I think that it's exactly right. Meaning it's what we've just said, you and I here as well, right? In our day and age where on the one hand, we do live in a, I think, a crasser society. And on the other hand, there's a value to us. So on the one hand, there's a value to speaking a more refined way. And then there's also a value to being direct and, and you know, to the point. And sometimes the way to do that is in a more, uh, let's call it abrupt and sometimes even crasser way. I'm not, I'm not endorsing crassness. I'm just saying I think that the, ten- the tension is inherent to the conversation. Right. But I, I think many of our modern listeners today would actually argue they would take crassness over the ability to have things talking to- spoken about openly than sort of this style of using euphemistic language. I mean, I could just, you know, a silly example would be like, you know, I'm very straight with parents in my office, like use the right words for body parts. A lot of people don't like to do that with their kids. You know, that's, you know, sort of a, a very basic sort of example. Um, okay, so I agree with you 100. No, I know you do. I know you that. do. But I, I meaning because I mean, like the difference between, I don't know, you know, <laughs> it's it's so counterintuitive to me to to use the words that I don't use. Right. But even even the difference between going, I'm going to the bathroom or I'm going to pee. Yeah, well, forgive me. Every all our listeners, please forgive me. But there's a difference there in that difference language, in that. and I, and it's generational, right? I think that there's, I think some of it is generational. I think some of it is is by temperament. You know, which which kind of expression are you going to choose? And I do not think that either of that. I don't think that the euphemism of going to the washroom or the bathroom or whatever your expression is. I don't think that that is the same thing as what you're talking about in your office, right? Meaning the body parts that the children need to learn how to say things directly and exactly and precisely, I think is an important lesson that we should all stand behind. Right. But I think the problem is, is that there are definitely people who have read this type of thing. I'm not even saying necessarily on this particular job and have taken it to an extreme. Um, but then, Agreed. but what's interesting to me is then what follows is two stories of, you know, teachers and students. Um, and the language is not so particularly bad. You know, the first one is a story with Rub and his students, right, where one, you know, where they're trying to say that this halacha, whatever they were learning, made them so tired, and, and the student uses this term, misangan, uh, which apparently is some euphemism for a pig, um, and then the other one uses, uh, you know, kigidi um, misangan, which apparently, you know, was like a tired, uh, a tired kid, right, and apparently, and Rub would not speak to the other student, and then the second story which I actually thought was very interesting, also the the Misora of it, right? That either it was Hillel with his student, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai, or it was Rebbe with his student, Rabbi Yochanan. So it clearly was a tradition that was around some student need, uh, Rabbi Yochanan. Um, and again, it just had to do with using the words Tahor or Tame, right? Um, you know, within a halachic discussion, and one of them sort of, you know, used the, used the word Tahor only and didn't use the word Tame, and the conclusion is, right, their teacher says, right, right, that the, the one who only used the word tahor, that they would eventually, you know, issue halachic rulings in Israel. 
And only a few days later did this, whichever Rabbi Yochanan you believe the story is about, issued halachic rulings in Israel. So I hear every, I don't know, when you read these stories, the nuance of the language is so little. I, I mean, the sensitivity to language is very interesting. But maybe the point is actually, is that it's talking much more about the rabbinic class, right? Like somebody who's really going to be horeh, who's really going to issue rulings, right? Where language is very important. And right, look how we, you know, how we read carefully anything that comes out of the Supreme Court, right? Or the whole idea of what the Supreme Court does, or, you know, now that we've all gone through this new appointment, you know, are you originalist? Are you, you know, whatever you are? That, but that's what it all has to do with. It's how do you read language of legal documentation? And so I think and I'll tell you, I'll take it. I'll take it to the step to the the lower level, right? The the baser level when somebody's when nowadays, if any officials, let's say the Supreme Court, if any of them were caught off mic. Right. I mean, on a live mic saying something crass, everyone would be like, oh, my goodness, the Supreme Court justice said, right. It's not considered appropriate given the role as opposed to given the person. Right. So I think that's really exactly. So I think we have a different. So I'm wondering if this is also sort of a rabbinic ideal in the sense of if you're going to be a person who teaches halacha, you better be very careful with your language. And that's also then, if we want to think of an overall theme here, right? What is this whole daf talking about, the previous daf into this daf? It's paying attention to one word in the Mishnah and having Seriously. so much discussion over why was that word chosen? Why is that the word you use where it could be a confusing word for people? And I think also, just straight up, the fact that there's a confusing word in the Mishnah, the first word of a new Masechet, bothers them right it bothers Chazal so they have to come up with look reason after reason after reason after reason to discuss it to say see there's a really good reason that this is like it is as opposed to saying well that's a confusing word let's move on right they don't want to move on because you can't you you have to make sense of it because what's it doing here right and so I I think that's that's also also how we get to this like there's a real the two stories of these Talmudan is almost showing the sensitivity to language that we're seeing already from Daphbet. Right. Okay. I want to just get to, there's one more, there's more than one more. This is a long Daph and it's, it's a rich Daph. And, you know, in case anybody thought we were still in Erevin, you're, it's very clear that we are not. Um, there's a discussion here about Kohanim and the, there's a discussion about the Kohanim's lineage. And then the Gemara says, but do we not, don't we not check into the Kohen's lineage, which of course runs counter to so much of what the Rabbanut in Israel does today, pardon the politics. Um, but what happens here is that there's a whole story that makes, that calls into the, it calls into question the practice of not checking into somebody's lineage. There was a trickster, non-Jew. Those are not synonymous. In this case, it's a it's a non-Jew who in fact is a trickster, right? So what does he do? He would he would go to Jerusalem and he would eat from the Korban Pesach. And the Gemara presumes that we all know that a non-Jew is not permitted to eat from the Korban Pesach. Amar Kativ Kol Lo and there it is, right? It says straight up, there's there's a verse that says no no stranger can eat from the Korban Pesach. And he would go home and he would say, ha ha, I would eat from the Korban Pesach. And 
and yet I ate from the best parts of the Korban Pesach. He's bragging. So Amarle Rebihuda ben Patera, apparently this is, you know, in his hometown or whatever, he's able to say to him, did they actually, did they feed you from the fat tail? Right, that's the, supposed to be the, I don't know, some meaty part of the animal, right? Amarle, lo. Ki selkat, ki selakt, no, ki selkat lahatam emaluhu sfuli ma'alya. So the next time you go there, say to them, give me from that fat tail. Ki selik amarluhu ma'alya sfuli. So he asked for it, amarle, alya legavoa selka. We don't eat that. We give that part to Hashem. We offer that on the Mizbeach. We, we burn it. And then they say to him, who told you to ask for this portion? Meaning that's not the way the korban, that's not the way the sacrifice works. Who would have this misinformation that he, he would even come and ask for this? And he cites his source. But they know meaning what's going on here? What do we have before us? But who batre? They checked into him. They checked after him, meaning they looked into who is this person before him, before them, and they discovered, lo and behold, he's a non-Jew, and he's trying to put one over on them to begin with. And they kill him. Okay, I don't really understand that little bit of the term, right, that they kill him. You know, this is puzzling, because they're not. he's not supposed to eat from the Korban Pesach, but that doesn't mean that a non-Jew who eats from the Korban Pesach is Chayav Mita, right? He's not obligated to be put to death. So what's really going on here? Is it because, you know, he's uh, really kind of to, trying to corrupt the entire system? Does killing here mean actually killing? I, I don't know. That that part I, I can't explain. I mean, more than this. And then they send a message to Rabbi Huda ben Batera. Shachule the Rabbi Huda ben Batera. Shalayim. So he said, they say to him, you are all the way in Nitzivin and your net is spread to Yerushalayim, meaning you're so far from here, but you helped us, meaning you helped us catch this guy because you gave him the words that would give him the wet, that when he used them, he, it would give him away and therefore we're able to preserve the sanctity of the Karban Pesach and the sanctity of of the entire tradition of, of what it means to, to have this in the Beit HaMikdash. Um, it's, I, I find this story to be fascinating in so many ways from the fact that there is no direct conversation here at all, except for what the guy brags about, right? Meaning what he says to Rabbi Huda ben Batera is direct, but everything else he's masquerading in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Huda ben Batera does not say to him, you know, you're not supposed to do that. Instead, he gives him a formula that's going to get him into trouble in a way that will, in fact, catch him up. But Rabbi Huda ben Bateri doesn't confront him. And I don't know to what extent this is, you know, a playing playing with this idea of language not being direct, or if it's just this is what, what happened. Uh, you know, and and indeed, um, you have to hand it to Rabbi Huda ben Bateri for his cleverness and, and the fact that, you know, he's working hard to protect to protect the, the avodah, to protect the service in the temple. Uh, it's it's definitely an interesting story. And just for the sake of time, I just want to make one more comment. You know, the the rest of the staff also talks then about a story involving Kohanim and that's her checking out the yichus of Kohanim, right? That there was a Kohen who maybe didn't uh, behave in the best way or through his language, it was revealed that maybe he wasn't actually a Kohen. 
right? And the Gemara says that they sort of kicked him out um, from being a Kohen. Um, and this whole idea of like checking somebody's yichus, right? Like, are they actually a Kohen or not? Um, and I know that today with sort of some of the modern politics in Israel, reading this on the top does not actually uh, seem very nice. Um, but I just want to point out that this actually was a real issue uh, that traces back to the time of the Shivatzion, right? Remember when B'nai Israel actually go back um, after the Galut, after being exiled for 70 years from Bavel, and Ezra and Nehemiah bring up a group of Jews, one of the things that Sefer Ezra mentions, actually, is that they, you know, had to sort of retrace the Kohanim. And there was actually a group of Kohanim who couldn't, a group of people who couldn't actually prove that they were Kohanim, right? And the idea that sort of like through the Galut, some of these lineages or these lines sort of got lost. And, and the other place I would encourage you to look at uh, is a very interesting mission, which appears in Ejot, which is a Masechet of Mishnah that's in uh, Nizikim, which is in Seder Nizikim, but there is no Gemara on it um, in the Bavli. And it talks about, um, it, it's a very interesting uh, Mishnah. It's, it's Perkhet Mishnah Zion. Uh, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but um, it's basic Rabbi Yoshua comes and he says that he learned from Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who learned from his teacher, who learned from his teacher, that this is a halacha l'moshe misinai. Right. This is something that goes all the way back that what is going to happen when Eliyahu comes. Right. That some of these lineage issues, these yichus issues, it, it, he's not referring here particularly to Kohanim, but more some issues in the general population are going to get resolved. My point in bringing this Mishnah is, is that there was always sort of these like lineage issues and that as much as we think it's sort of like a modern day problem of proving that you're Jewish, proving that you're a Kohen or whatever it is. We actually see these, you know, it, it's throughout our history. We see it in Tanakh. Here's a good example of it here in our DAP. Uh, and, and it's interesting to know that sometimes people actually did lose track of who they actually were. It's fascinating. It's, you know, that story, the Hasidic story of the, the Rebbe who knows the, I don't know. I see, I'm even forgetting the story, right? But the Rebbe goes and he knows where to go in the woods to Davin and he has the words and he's got a formula and then they he saves everybody. And the next generation knows less and the next generation knows less. And I think that this idea that people can kind of lose track of who they are, even when they're ostensibly in a setting where you would think they would be paying attention, is on the one hand frightening and on the other hand so human. And, and you know, it behooves us to to delve in and get all we right. can and, and, and education all the background actually did you know it actually happened well that's our top discussion for the day rank us review us on all major podcasts thank you to Rabbi michelle farber for hosting us on the hodge website let us know what you thought about today's stop on our talking talmud facebook page and until tomorrow go 